Thank you for joining us at Daybreak Church. We exist to share the story of God with people so people can belong to the story of God. In this series, Morning, Noon, and Night, we're looking at the constant call of Jesus to be with Him, become like Him, and do what Jesus did. This call of discipleship, whole life submission to His way of living is always before us. As Dallas Willard says, we don't drift into discipleship. It is a every moment, day in, day out, morning, noon, and night choice of saying yes to Jesus and His way, His truth, and life before us. This series, we are looking at the different rhythms of Jesus that help form us, living in the fullness of God's grace, relinquishing our false self to live in our true identity in Jesus, to worship Him fully, letting go of all other idols, to hold Him alone, openness to God's will and leading, sharing our life with others, hearing from God, and incarnating Jesus as we go about our life. This all-of-life devotion to the one who calls us to pick up our cross and follow Him, morning, noon, and night. We pray that this message helps you lean more into the story of God and ask yourself, what is one step I can take today in obedience to surrender my life to Jesus more? Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome you again. We are in a series right now called Morning, Noon, and Night, looking at the rhythms of Jesus, the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus walked, talked, taught, um, and the importance of that invitation that he has for any that would call him Messiah, would call him Lord, that we would follow after him, doing the things that he did. And so as a church, um, we are looking at what has uh, been coined and called the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices that exist within the church uh, to help for that very thing that helps us grow and become more like him. This last Sunday, we tackled the, the main topic that I think all foundation needs to begin with is that we walk and live in grace with the Father. Uh, that because of Jesus, because of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, we live in grace. We work from this place of grace. We don't work for grace. So if you're taking notes, like that's a huge thing that we, we live and move and breathe from the grace with the Father. We don't work for it. We live from it, not for it. From, not for like lock that in. This is really important, especially this morning as we have this uh, conversation uh, that will probably be a little challenging for all of us if, if we take it serious. This morning we're looking at this larger topic of relinquishment, uh, something that we, we see in the life of Jesus that we'll get to in just a minute. Something that was seen in the character of, of our Messiah, then the character of Jesus, of how he let go of his authority. He let go of his natural identity as, this, as what would be the Son and received everything from the Father. So in our me-focused culture, we are called by God to surrender to his authority and let go of the worldly things that beg and compete for our attention. 
We're called to take up our cross and deny ourselves, as we talked about last Sunday. And it's by God's grace that through relinquishment, we are able to draw closer to Him. We are drawn closer to Him. And the beautiful gift in relinquishment is that we discover our true self. We discover our true self. And uh, where it's important for our conversation this morning especially is um, that culture is really big on that right now, right? Of like finding our true self. That there's a good self-help book or a good program or a good test or a good number system or like what kind of ice cream am I? What kind of animal would I be? What kind of bird? What's my favorite color? All of those things. And if you've done those, it's okay. Uh, but that's not where we find our true identity. Our true identity is not found in some little test that we take. Our identity is found, the true identity can only be found from our identity hidden in Jesus. Like that, is, that, like that is the only thing where we can truly rest our true life in is who we are in Christ. Because the Father looks at us through the life of Jesus and says, you are my son, you are my daughter. That is the ultimate identity, the ultimate place of true self. So we talk about relinquishment. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 7, it says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see in the pattern of Jesus this, this life pattern, this lifestyle of relinquishing his will for the will of the Father. Jesus, as he says in John, my will is to do the will of my Father. Whatever God wants, that's the goal. I'm not after my own agenda. My agenda is that of the Father. And this invitation for you and I is identical to that, that we would grow in seeking the Father's will, that we would let go of some of those Things, some of those dreams, some of those pursuits that may not be that of of uh, that may not be that of God's, but that of our own making. Because when we rest in and press after what God has for us, that is where true life is found. And I don't know about you, but I long for true life in Jesus, and I long for it for you. We're going to take a little trip back to the Sermon on the Mount uh, just to kind of remind us of this, Matthew. Chapter 7, Jesus says this in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Church, my heart is to find that road. Not because it's hard, because that's not a fun invitation. Like when I'm like thinking to set out to do an adventure, I'm rarely I'm like, you know, what's the hardest, like most challenging road to go after? But yet, it's not about the road, it's about the gift. And the promise is what? Life. The one who walks this road finds life, real life, 
true life. And that's what I'm after because Jesus says the promise for the one who goes the other direction, which is the direction the rest of the world goes, it's the direction that everyone else is pursuing, their gift is destruction. The reward received for that life of constantly gathering, constantly bringing in, constantly warring to get ahead, to achieve more, to become more, is one that will lead in to death. But this narrow way, this way of Jesus, there's a promise, he says, this leads to life. I want this for me, I want this for you and I to enter into real life. And this is the beauty of morning, noon, and night. My, my hope for us is that we see that it's not simply about us waiting for eternity, but living in it in the moment right now. That the gift of life that Jesus gives is also for the end of our life, but is also meant for right now. That we can live with the real joy, real excitement, real mercy, real grace every single moment we wake up. That we have choice to relinquish the things in our life, the idols, the things that could keep us away from the Father, the things that keep us uh, from being all that God has invited us into being and to pick up and receive from Him. So I have some questions for us this morning. First one, am I becoming the person that I truly want to be? Am I becoming the person I truly want to be now, then, and when? Am I becoming the person that I truly want to be? And the question, this question may not be good enough or deep enough, so to take it even a step deeper, am I becoming the person God would have me be? Am I becoming the person that God would have me be? Next to that, it's important for you and I to, to keep this phrase locked in. Working from, not working for. As a follower of Jesus, this is the greatest gift, and if you hear nothing else this morning, if you are following after Jesus, if you have said yes to the lordship of, of his life leading you, you are working from your place of identity hidden in him. Like you're working from it, not for it. And that might seem a little, little obscure. Um, so kind of to, to break it this way, that would be like um, you, you have a job, you show up on the job, and they hand you all of your money for the year, with all of your money for life up front. Here's everything you're ever going to make and receive right here, right now. Oh boy, that sounds delightful. You're working from this place of employment. You're not working for it. You're not working for the gift because the gift has already been given. Everything's already been given to you. The identity, the access, the relationship, the mercy, all of it's already been given, so we work from it, not for it. Because what we're going to press into this morning, this relinquishing, this letting go of false self, we're going to have to lock this in because this is a direct assault against the devil in how he will try to deceive you, distract you, and destroy you along this road. False self is always vulnerable because it, it, it isn't rooted in truth. 
Instead, it roots, it, it, it roots itself into things we idolize. So if, if I idolize, like even being a pastor, like that, that becomes an idol, it becomes a place of identity, of like, man, like this is what I do. I have to preach well, and I have to lead well, and I have to always be doing this, always growing from this. If that becomes the place that I draw my identity from, it, it becomes an unhealthy pursuit. And if you spend any time or would like Google, don't Google this because it's really sad, uh, but like if you Google pastors, like failing pastors, the headlines are heartbreaking. Leaders and men and women who, who get caught up in, in, in the, the rat race of trying to be bigger and better and more instead of resting purely in their identity. But it's not just me as a pastor, it's you as a parent, you as a professional, you as a grandma, you as an individual. You can fill in the blank, the thing that we might idolize, the thing that we might hold up as an idol to say this is where I connect myself to draw my identity from. Reputation, success, status, family, jobs, friends, health, wealth. Any ounce of us gaining or clinging our identity to any of these things is idolatry. And Jesus says, let them go. Root yourself instead in me. But our truest identity can never be something we can, can accomplish, earn, or prove on our own. It has to be a gift that we receive. Because a true identity is something that can't be stripped away. I don't know about you, I want to hold on to and cling to the things that are eternal. I don't want to hold on to something that, that can only be for just a fleeting moment. Um, yeah, when you just like let that kind of sink in for a second. Like the thing that you're pressing after, and hear me when I say this, like having a good job, wanting to be successful, wanting to own your own business, wanting to be the best at what you do. None of that's bad. This is the, the hard challenge that exists in, in rightly ordering our thoughts and how we root ourselves to the beauty of Jesus is that doing good isn't bad. Pursuing those things, having an upward mobility for those things is not bad. But if it, that becomes the entirety of our pursuit, if that's where identity is found, if I'm crushed, like, let this, like this is where it sinks in. If daybreak ceases to exist, my soul will never be crushed. Because it's not locked into this building, into this place, into this amazing orange carpet. It's, it is nice. No, it, it has to be locked into something that cannot be burnt up, that cannot be robbed, <laughs> that cannot be taken. Jesus says this analogy, and he's talking about to, to put our treasures into the things that are of eternal and that last forever. Don't store up, he says, don't store up for yourself treasures that a thief can take, or not even a thief, that if a moth gets into it, it will destroy it. So you see now we're going through our keepsakes uh, yesterday she was going through some pictures and I was going through my little keepsake box and um, just super crazy randomness of fun little things uh, that we, we always find and uh, have this cute little sweater from when I was like probably one to brown. I'm like, oh, look at that. And like in my head, I was like, I could get into that. And I was like, don't, no, don't do that. <laughs> don't even, had this little, this little hat that had my name on it and it said one size fits all. And I was like, smack. And I'm like, oh, maybe one size for children, maybe. I don't know. But like, as I looked at all this, 
like some of it had some sentimental value, and then I started throwing stuff away, and she's like, no, not that picture, and I'm like, who cares? Like, I lived it. I don't need to look at a picture and go, oh yeah, there was that one time I had a dog. Like, I don't need to do that. I don't need to lock myself into that, that memory. And so when I think about that, like those memories, if a moth got in there or our, our, these, these chests sit right underneath uh, our, where our toilet would be, uh, if God forbid something would be to happen, all of that becomes ruined in a moment. And so, but many of us, if we're not careful, we lock our livelihood into something that literally is sitting under a septic tank. That if something happens, our life is ruined. Oh my gosh, I lost that job. Oh my gosh, that, that relationship, that friendship, that thing, that, that, that pattern that I was after, everything fell apart. But if my life is hidden, as the Scripture says, in Jesus, I can never be removed from His hands. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Like that is where our identity is called to lock in. So the sermon in a sentence for this morning, that following Jesus invites me to relinquish, to let go of a life filled with getting and acquiring and instead position my life to receive from the Father. To instead of pursuing and longing after getting and acquiring things, instead the life of relinquishing says, you are a child of God, sit back and receive from your Father. Because when you think about it, children uh, with, a, with, with a healthy parenting, they're never competing for their, their parents' affection. They don't draw them cute pictures so that their mom and dad love them. They draw them cute pictures because their mom and dad love them. Yeah, Drew, like put it on the fridge, right? The relationship is the same with the Father. We, we aren't doing things to gain His attention or approval. So when we talk about relinquishment, what is it not? I think this is really key for us. Relinquishment is not being lazy. It's like, yeah, whatever happens, you know. It's not being apathetic. It's not being careless. We don't sit back and go, you know what? I'm relinquishing control this, this month. I'm not going to pay my bills. We're just going to see how the Lord provides. Well, He's going to provide you without a house and without internet and phone bills. It's not an excuse to be careless and to not do responsible, mature things. It is not simply letting go. Hear me this when I say this too. It's not that old phrase, well, just let go and let God. No, it is way deeper than that. It is not letting go of things that we simply don't like. That is also like, I need us to lock this. Like, you know what? I don't, you know, I'm going to relinquish uh, my responsibilities for work. I'm going to relinquish my responsibilities for caring for the house or caring for myself. No, it is not a relinquishment of those things. But what it is, it's an opening of our hand to release the grip of self and to receive the sufficiency of Jesus. Relinquishment is opening our hands and releasing the grip of self to receive the sufficiency of Jesus and to be and live in that true self. This invitation, this practice invites us to literally let go of the things that we would cling to and say, God, I'm going to receive all of my identity from you. 
And so you might be asking, well, what, what is this identity I get to receive from Jesus? Great question. If you're taking notes, you can write these down as a little rapid fire. Our identity is hidden in Christ and given to us, received from the Father, and Scripture tells us this. You are chosen. You're chosen. John 15, 16. You are chosen. Like, imagine how many, like, when you grew up in school, I love playing kickball. I was so good. I, like, had this little, like, I had mastered it at, like, age 11 that I could channel all of my pudginess into the right leg. And, like, the moment this leg would come off and this leg would go, it would just, like, burl out. But none of the other kids believed it. <laughs> so I was always picked last. Always. I'm like, y'all don't understand. We'd win the game if you just picked me. But, yeah, there is no picking last with God. God looks at us, He looks at you and says, you're chosen. I love you. I cherish you. You're not pick number two. You're not pick number three. You're not, well, I guess I'm stuck with you because you're the last one on the team. No, the Father chooses us. You're you're a beloved child of God. 1 John 3.1. We are friends of Jesus. John 15.15. Like that, let, let that lock in. Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Like as disciples, this is what's true of us. As we follow after him, he leans in close and says, hey, I don't just consider you somebody who wants to be like me. I consider you a friend. I consider you close. I consider you someone that I'm going to share and do life with. Our identity as the temple of God, the very indwelling of where God calls himself home. 1 Corinthians 3.16. This one's a favorite of mine. Ephesians 2.10. You're God's work of art. God's work of art. We are masterpieces made by a master craftsman, perfectly created. You're fearfully and wonderfully created made. Psalms 139 verse 14. As somebody who tries to make things, um, this verse has become more of a reality to me as of late. Uh, the, The pairing of fearfully and wonderfully. I fearfully will make things because I want it to like, especially like if I'm making beard product for my face, I'm doing it fearfully because I'm rubbing something on my face that if I get the chemical compounds wrong, like I'm just I'm going to break out, like my skin could rot, I don't know. It's terrifying. So there's a level of fear, fearfully doing something with excellence, but then this side note of wonderfully that it's perfect. I don't do the wonderfully part right. Like that is the gift of the Father. He says I am fearfully, perfectly, wonderfully making you. And this last one just brings me joy. Uh, Do you know that you're danced over by God? Danced over. Zephaniah 3.17. Some good Old Testament right there. The Father looks at you and with joy dances. He's delighted in you. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody like dance in your presence because just your presence shows up. And like some of us probably see that well, like with the dogs when they kind of like prance and get all crazy doggy like. Uh, like there's something beautiful when it's the person, a child, like just that excitement, that energy. 
Like, and I look at that scripture and that language that's used there, that the Father, because of His deep love and compassion for us, He dances over us. So how do we move in this relinquishment of, of the false self, the self that's competing to create and to find ourself and to live in the sufficiency with Jesus, wrestling with, with being the, the source of our own need. That's what we try to lock in. We try to be sufficient for ourselves, and yet Jesus says, I will be your sufficiency. I will be the place you find your identity. I will be the place you find your hope. I will be the place you find your purpose. I will be the place for you because I have it all mapped out for you. Stop trying to find it in all the stuff. Jesus makes this invitation. We read it earlier, Matthew 6, 19-21. Again, the Sermon on the Mount continues to teach us. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where, uh, for where the, your treasure is, your heart will be there also. There's an invitation we really begin seeing kind of worked out in the life of Abraham. I'm going to hit some scripture pretty quickly for us. Um, the invitation that God has when He calls us in the beginning um, in our life, it is always from a place to a better place. And this is how Scripture begins, Genesis 12, 1-3. God is with Abram, and He says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. He's literally, God is literally saying, I want you to leave every part of yourself that you think is your identity. Your family, your land, your relatives, your father's house, every place that you would cling for your security and your sufficiency, God is saying, I want to take you away from all of that and give you something new. Not only something new, but something way better. He says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and, I, and, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse any of those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord told him. And, and Lot went with him, his, his, his brother. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Harlan. I love the, the details in the scripture. 75 years old. This isn't a young whippersnapper. This isn't a young kid like, hey, if you make a mistake, don't worry. You'll have plenty of time to fix it on the road. No, this is a dude who was established. 75 years old, and God's like, hey, leave it all, because I have a new identity for you. I have a calling for you. I want to make you mine, and in making you mine, there's this beautiful promise that comes along with it. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you, that your name will be great. You will be a blessing to others. This is a similar invitation that the Father has for us. So the habits of relinquishment, we think through the lens for Abraham, becomes deeply ingrained for him. They became deeply ingrained in us as we read these same words. God's invitation to say, will you leave what you think is where your identity comes from? Will you walk away from your old self and embrace the new self, the new creation, how the Father longs to make you and I 
new. If you are familiar with the life of Abraham, he continues on this journey, and every step of the way, God is inviting him to leave more and more, leaving Ur, leaving Haran, leaving Shechem, leaving Bethel, leaving Egypt, Gerar, Beersheba, leaving, leaving, leaving. Constantly we see in the life of Abraham this similar calling in us that God is always seeing things in us that we need to leave behind to experience the fullness that he has for us. So question for you this morning is, where is one thing that I need to leave today? What is one thing in my life that the Father may be inviting me to let go of? Realizing that relinquishment is a prerequisite to fulfillment. Relinquishment is a prereq to fulfillment. As Eugene Peterson says, the letting go of a cramped self-will opens us up to to an expansive God-willed life. When I let go of my self-will, I'm able to hold the will of God. I'm able to live this life out. Ephesians 4, 20, Paul says this, but this is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. If you have your Bible, like highlight that right there. Deceitful desires. This is a struggle that many of us have. We, are, we struggle with thinking that we could have a bad desire. We, just, we struggle with the acknowledgement that something that I would want could actually be bad for me. We have to kind of begin, and we're going we're gonna to land there in just a minute. But Paul is huge here, like that, that the old self, there's a corruption that exists because of these deceitful desires. But to be renewed in the spirits, spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. So it's this renewal of our minds that needs to take place. We would take on this. So, what are the practices of relinquishment? There's quite a few. Uh, there's one of discernment. I was going to talk a little bit about discernment this morning, but then I realized that we're going to be doing a very long series uh, through Proverbs and discernment. I want to look at what does a life look like to, to live in discernment. Um, I think it's a major um, need in our society today to have wisdom. Uh, not just knowledge, uh, but actually wisdom. How do we discern the will of God? How do we discern the right things to do, say, buy, live, work, when to go to bed? Like, seriously, some of y'all need discernment of when to go to sleep at night. Uh, but there's a reality there. There's the way in life that God invites us into. We're doing a much longer series than that. Um, there's an invitation uh, in a practice of relinquishment of silence and solitude. We're going to be talking about that in a few weeks as well. Um, silence is a, an enforced rule on our life to not feel the need to communicate and share everything that's going on in our life. We're going to talk more about that. Solitude, a time of getting away and being with yourself. The major one that I wanted to lock in on this morning is confession and self-examination. So there's a definition for us. Confession and self-examination is the process where the Holy Spirit opens my heart to what is true about me. This isn't a shame-inducing inventory, 
but rather opening myself to God in the gospel that transforms me and makes me new and more like Him. Confession embraces Christ's gift of forgiveness and restoration while setting us on the path to renewal and change. So confession and self-examination. This is where things get a little heavy for us in our society and our world. Uh, We don't like to confess things where the world tells us keep keep it hidden. Keep it locked in. You don't want somebody to judge you. Uh, your darkness will keep you from getting ahead. Uh, the evil things, the bad things, your sin uh, in a world, will like if, if people know about those things, they're going to judge you. They're going to think about you a certain way. You're not going to be able to, to have those same kind of friends or do X, Y, and Z. But yet Scripture is really keen to say, this is where life begins. Grace comes in and lets us see a pattern and an invitation that calls us out of darkness. And the way that we leave darkness isn't by just simply going, okay, I see light now. It's by confessing. Where I am is not where I should be. Where I am is not where the Father would have me. Where I am is not the place to be. And where I should be going is where the Father tells me. And so confession is saying, I messed up. I don't like this because I want what is better. And so confessing allows me to say no more to this, yes to this. If we don't confess, it doesn't change. You just can't. Because our minds are wired in such a way that we will continue a pattern. So what does confession look like? What does repentance look like? Charles Spurgeon says this. I have a few quotes that I think are really good. Repentance from Charles Spurgeon. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once was hated and hate what once he loved. Let me say that last part. When we sin, it's saying, I'm choosing this thing over relationship with God. So we're loving this, hating Him. Repentance is, is saying, this is turning of our mind, saying, you know what, no, I love the one that I showed hatred to, and I'm hating the thing that I showed love to. I don't want this thing anymore. I want the Father Himself. J.I. Packer says this way, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much of you know of yourself to as much as you know your God. That's deep. (laughs) Let me read that again. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. As we become more aware of who we are, we become more aware of our sin, we become more aware of our God, we become more aware of, man, He does desire holiness. Like, God does desire me to not be short-tempered with my wife. That's a desire from the Father. God desires me to be kind to people. God desires when I'm driving and someone cuts me off to not have an evil thought. Like, his desire is to be pure and perfect. 
But pastor, that's hard. Yeah, welcome to the game. Like, yes. Like, that's the story. That's the life. It's not easy. What did, what did Jesus say in Matthew? It is a hard road that leads to... Nobody, everybody forgot already? Life. I want to get to that place. I want to live in the life that Jesus has. And so it means as I grow as a Christian that we sometimes look at our sins like, yeah, well, I'm not murdering somebody. I'm not killing. I'm not killing people. I'm not like, like stealing money. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not doing X. I'm not like making fun of people. Like, okay, those are all, we, we, love, we love the big critical sins. But the Father says, man, if there's any sin in you, it's too much. That's why we have grace. That's why we have Jesus. I'm going to read for us this morning 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, I want you to read along with me. love hearing those pages turn. 2 Samuel 12. This is a story that will lock it in for us. Because like David, um, we, we want to do right. We want to do well. I think many of us, when we think about God, we want to love God and, and be loved by Him. And so a lot of us are like David in this. And so David is told a story by Nathan, his, his pastor. We'll kind of call Nathan the pastor. So Nathan comes to, to David and he tells him a story. When he arrived, he said, So there, was, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, a very, lar- had very large flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. Y'all could say, "Oh, he's mad!" Like I want you to picture this: this cute, beautiful little lamb, this little baby lamb, like super cute, and it's growing. This man's kids grew up with the baby lamb. Baby's lamb is lamb chop. I don't know. Uh, everybody grew up. Like the family loves the lamb. Lamb's super cute, beautiful. Everyone loves the lamb. From his meager food, she would eat. It's like just the relationship there. The, the, this poor man would give of his food to the lamb. From his cup, she would drink. And in his arms, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Are we all there? We're all sad. We're like, oh, this is so sweet. Such a beautiful little picture. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle, to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest. Now, just for those of you who don't understand Greek or Hebrew, prepared means that he took the lamb, slit its throat, bled it out, cut it up into pieces, and roasted it. Not just prepared, like he prepared to eat it. So he butchered this man's gift. David was infuriated. Are most of us kind of with David right now? Like, what a horrible, oh, it's a horrible thing to do. That's awful. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done these things and shown no pity. You must pay, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Verse 7, Nathan replied to David, you are this man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you, king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. 
I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's commands by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in the broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all of Israel in the broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this manner, the son born to you will die. This passage uh, is, is rich with a lot for us this morning of looking at the need of confession and self-examination. It took, so King David, this story, uh, we've all probably heard the story of King David and Bathsheba. Uh, one day the king was bored and didn't want to go to work, was staying up late. Some afternoon saw a young woman bathing on top of a roof, called for her, um, talked to her in a really stern way. <laughs> uh, we have children up here, so we'll leave that to the parents to tell their kids later. Uh, and upon this, converse, upon this conversation with her, realized that she was married uh, to one of his leading generals. So this was a friend of his that he took his, took his wife. And instead of repentance, instead of apologizing, instead of acknowledging his brokenness and his mess, uh, he made a way so that her husband would die in battle and that he would take her as his own wife. And for whatever reason, King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who loved God, none of that changed. His action, none of that changed. But his heart became conceited, his heart pressed after something that wasn't for him. And it took Nathan telling this story that all of us would be like, yeah, that's horrible. Man, that's egregious. And then Nathan saying, yeah, you are that man. The same would be true for us, this story. You are that man. You are that woman. We hear those stories. We hear those stories of brokenness and sin. And the invitation is still said to us, you are that person in need of a Savior. You are that person in need of confession. You are that person in need of the Father's mercy and grace. Confession rightly declares to ourself, as King David did, I have sinned against the Lord. That confession allows for grace to be displayed like Nathan says. Because of your confession, you will not die. Because of your confession, you will not die. Confession rightly declares to ourself, I can't pretend to be right before the one who knows me better. The Father knows us perfectly. And I think there's something that locks into our soul sometimes that we have this thought that, well, God knows that I messed up, 
right? Like he knows that I, like, what do I need to tell him? There's something freeing and powerful in the need for us to be able to say, God, this is the thing that I sinned against you. Um, make it practical. So if, like with my wife, if I, do, if I sin against Stacy, um, what would be a sin that I, well, she's talking. Uh, <laughs> um, if I do something sinful towards her, say something mean, if I just say like, hey, I'm sorry, what are you sorry for? Well, stuff. That there's, there's not a real apology, there's not a real repentance, there's not a real engagement that's, that's taking place there. Now when I come to her and say, hey, I'm sorry about yesterday when I said this, it brings to the forefront the brokenness, it brings to the forefront the actual issue, that then because she is filled with the grace of Jesus, she goes, I forgive you, and then she punches me, no, like, don't ever do that again, no. But we walk this out because there's a difference between a failure of intention versus a failure of intimacy. A failure of intention is me just saying, you know what, I, I messed up in the, in the path that I was going. A failure of intimacy says I've messed up in which the one I was doing life with. God isn't about us just simply looking at our life and going, yeah, I, me like, I messed up in this life. No, he's like, you've messed up with me, and I love you, and I am your father, and I want a perfect relationship with you. To close this out, David writes in Psalm 51 about this very prayer, uh, this very self-examination. I want the worship team to actually go ahead and come on up. Psalm 51 it is our guide to confession and self-examination. King David says this. So he wrote this psalm after uh, everything took place, after, his, after, the committing of, um, after Nathan brought everything to his attention. So starting in verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. Catch, catch the self-examination, the confession piece. It's God, don't be, faith, don't be faithful to me because of what I've done. But be, be faithful to me, be gracious to me according to you. Not according to my actions. According to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Completely. Not just in part, but in whole. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely your des you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me d wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me in giving me a willing spirit that I will teach the rebellious your ways and the sinners will return to you. 
Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifice. Whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar, at your table. This morning, as we look at this necessary movement for us to experience the fullness and this life that God sets before us, we need to relinquish, we need to let go, we need to self-examine in moments and look at our life and say, God, where, where am I missing something? Ask yourself this question this morning, when have I tasted the joy of forgiveness? When have I tasted the joy of forgiveness? Have I confessed before God the realization? Because confession makes it known to me where I'm actually being forgiven. To realize what the Father is actually taking away from me. What He's actually forgiving me of. The rebellion and brokenness in my heart. And if I'm not aware of those things, it just becomes really callous. He's just forgiving me. No. My thoughts, my behavior, my anger. The Father looks at those things as I forgive you. Where have I tasted the joy? What sin of mine hurts my relationship most with God? What action do I continue to commit that breaks my relationship with the Father? Father invites us to a table of grace that is set before us every single time we come to Him. In these moments of self-examination, of stopping and saying, Jesus, I, I want to be closer to you. And I don't want to just assume that for us. Like That's my heartbeat every moment I wake up. I wake up and my attention is, God, how can I be with you more? How can I be more like you? How can I grow with you today? And if that's not a part of our heart, we're, a lot of what I'm talking about is just going to fall flat. <laughs> we're like, Wait, I'm supposed to be different. I'm supposed to put on the new self. My mind is supposed to be renewed. I'm supposed to long for these better things. Yes. And the more that we do it, the more it becomes our hunger. The more it becomes our delight. The more it becomes a joy to sit back and go, Jesus, like, how have you forgiven me? What are you forgiving me of? The tables that you invite me to, the promises that you're fulfilling in my life. This table that you invite me to, I don't have to work for this grace and mercy. I simply work in it and from it. So this morning as we worship, I want to give us just a few moments to where you are to just say, whether it's under your breath or even aloud, God, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for this specific sin? You don't have to lay everything out unless you want to lay everything out. That's totally, totally fine. But that as we would rise this morning, I want to invite us to stand.
that in an act of worship, that, that where you are, that we would, we would be able to see ourselves and see in the moment and the place the thing that would separate us, that you are forgiven of in Jesus, and that we would confess that before the Father. God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. It is grace to be made right with you and before you to live and press after you more and more. To receive the gift of life from you. To choose your path. But in doing so, you invite us and command us to confess before you where we have sinned against you. Where we have missed the mark. And it's in doing so that we don't see our shame, but we see your sufficiency to forgive us. We don't get locked in the brokenness of how bad we failed before you, but how amazing you are to forgive us and welcome us home. And as we become more aware of that and confess that, that we relinquish that part of our life to you. That we relinquish the control. We relinquish the desires to get ahead. Those desires that make us short-tempered and angry. Those things that would have us pursue things that are unhealthy and bad and broken and sinful. And pursue after you. Jesus, as we come before you to worship, Father, I long for us to worship you in truth and in beauty. With clean hands and pure hearts. So as we take just a few moments in silence around this room, Father, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us, show us where we have sinned against you today, this week, a pattern that has been existing in us for a while, and that in your mercy you would reveal it to us, and not in shame but in sufficiency we would come running to you, knowing that you've made a way, knowing that you are the way, and you invite us into real life with you. Jesus, we love you and we praise you, and I just ask that you would give us courage and boldness to proclaim you. Father, we ask all of this for your glory and for our good. We pray that this message helps you lean more into the story of God and ask yourself, what is one step I can take today in obedience to surrender my life to Jesus more? Thank you for listening.